as you look through the story of the Old Testament, you can see that God blesses over and over and over again. God blesses with life in the very beginning. Adam and Eve are the first ones to receive that gift of life. But as it would become a pattern, Adam and Eve turn that gift on themselves. They sin. Yet God continues to bless as the story goes on. God blesses Abraham with a legacy. Your descendants are going to be as numerous as the stars in the sky. You're going to be a blessing to all the peoples of the earth. But Abraham and Sarah are a bit older than people are normally when they have children. And there's some skepticism that enters into the picture of God's blessing. God gives his people, Israel, freedom through the exodus. And even as they're wandering towards the Red Sea, having been given that freedom, being told, you're free now, you're going to be going on, when the Egyptian army comes along, as many of us would feel, they felt fear. God had given them this blessing, yet they feared. God continues to bless his people because those same people, as they're out In the desert, after being freed through the exodus, and they're being given the law, this agreement or this testimony, really, of God's goodness and desire to be in communion with them, what's happening in the camp while they're being given the law? Rebellion against God. But God continues to bless. When the people are finally cross the Jordan and go into the land God promised way back when, that he said he would bring them to, they finally get into the land in their allotted places in that land, delivered by God, what do they do? They commit spiritual infidelity against God and set up idols and high places. And God continues to bless. He's established himself as the king over them. And as we'll see today, what does he do? And we already, we already heard it in 1 Samuel 8. They reject God. But he continues to bless And he continues to bless his people. But boy, am I glad all of those reactions to God's blessing ended in the Old Testament. Right? The people sinned and they had skepticism and fear and rebellion. Aren't we glad that that ended then? And we laugh because we know that's not the case, right? We know that God, uh, let's just establish it this morning, God's in the business of blessing. That's God's business. God wants us. God wants the best for us. He's in the business of blessing, but the question we have to ask is, am I ready to receive it? Am I really ready to receive what God offers? God offers to us the same thing he offered to Adam and Eve. We are here because of God's common grace that he's given us life. None of us did anything to deserve it. We were granted that by God's grace. Thanks be to God. That's why we're here this morning. It's because God willed it, not because we earned life. And God wants us to actually enjoy the thing that he gave us. But God wants us to have more than that. That's why he sent Jesus. Do you ever stop and consider the fact that someone died for you? I miss that fact so often. But God, in his goodness and grace, has blessed us saying, I've given you this, but I had planned this. Do you want in? And he sent his son so that we could have something more. The life that is truly life. And for those of us that have said yes to Jesus, he gives us the way to live through life into that life to come, life eternal, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And how often I take that for granted. 
God continues to bless us, though. And God gives us a hope beyond today that even though things might go wrong, that things might sour in this life, that tragedy will strike, there's something more than just now that God has promised us, something far better than this moment. God continues to bless us. And Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, he talks about not throwing sacred things to dogs or pearls before swine. And I think sometimes God's blessing falls on me like that. I don't know if you're like that, but I miss the goodness God has. I take it for granted when God continues to bless. That's kind of the world that we're entering into with 1 Samuel. We've been going over 1 Samuel for the past few weeks now. We're finally getting to King Saul today. I said the whole thing was about him, but we've been working our way up to it. And we're going to run into King Saul finally today. But I I want to kind of put a foundation before us of a way to walk into this world by actually looking at the words of Jesus when he talks about the parable of what we call the parable of the sower, but it's really the parable of the soils. If you're following along this morning, we're going to do a little Bible flipping. 1 Samuel 7, 8, and 9, well, 7, 8, and 10 are really your places to, to follow along. Um, we're going to start at 7, but I'm going to read Matthew 13 right now, which will come on the screen, so I won't make you work for it. You can listen. It says, Then he told them many things in parables. And let's remember the parables are about the kingdom of God. That's what they concern. He says, A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil where it produced a crop 160 or 30 times what was sown. Whoever has ears, let them hear. So when the, the, the sower comes along, the, the condition of the soil is what really matters. It's the good news being spread. The good news of the kingdom of God. It's come. Jesus is going around spreading this. How is it going to be received by each person? How is it even going to be received within a culture? We're seeing both of those things at play within our passage, passages of 1 Samuel this morning. Do we have prepared hearts? Do we have unmoored lives? Do we have lives that are going to get, they're going to take something of this, of the message of, of God's goodness, but it's going to get choked out by the worries of the world, or is it going to actually produce something? So we enter into this world of 1 Samuel with that as in the background. Keep the soils in the background. We enter into this, and where we last left uh, the Israelites uh, in 1 Samuel, they had uh, gone to war against the Philistines, the ever-present threat of their day, and they had lost. And they thought to themselves, in their wisdom, well, if we just had the Ark of the Covenant, then we would have won. That's God's presence. Then we can manufacture a win with God's presence on our side. So they bring the Ark of the Covenant. And what they recognize is God's presence is with them, but they can't control God. So they lose roundly. And the Ark of the Covenant is taken by the Philistines to Philistine territory. And after seven months, the Philistines wish they would have never saw the thing. They send it back. Right? They don't want this Ark of the Covenant. It just causes them trouble. And we saw that when it went back, there was a, a period of repentance on the part of Israel. But it didn't last long because they end up misusing the Ark still. And they pay the price for it. And finally, finally, they're called to repentance by Samuel. 
what they have set up in their culture at that time, this land given to them by God, they are worshiping God, but they also have these Baals and these Ashtoreth poles set up. The Baals are the, are the male god, and the Ashtoreths are the female god. It's a fertility cult is what it is, and they believe they could bribe or convince the gods to do what they wanted, basically to produce something in the land. It also had a lot to do with cult prostitution that was going on around this. It was not what God wanted. These are idols. These are false gods. They're trying to get something out of them. And they're trying to do the same with God because of that world that they live in. And Samuel calls them to repentance. Finally, in chapter 7, verses 3 and 4, Samuel goes to the people and he said to the Israelites, if you are returning to the Lord with all your hearts, then rid yourselves of the foreign gods and the asterisks and commit yourselves to the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hands of the Philistines. That's a pretty good offer. So the Israelites put away their Baals and Ashtoreths and served the Lord only. Now let's not be deceived because this looks like, if we go back to the soil conditions, it looks like they're allowing the land to be tilled. It looks like there's good soil that's there. But really it's still kind of rocky. It's still a bit thorny. Because they put these things away, but they're not completely done with this. Right? The people are really responding, saying, You know what, Samuel? You're right. We want what God offers. We want truth. We want everything that God has, has given, what's true and right. But we want it our way. That's how we want it. So they're still not quite there. And we're going to see that as the story progresses. It's kind of like um, somebody who is an alcoholic, for instance, who dries up but doesn't deal with the underlying issue. Somebody who's been struggling with pornography, for instance, and doesn't really get accountability or set things in place to be rid of it. They say, I'm done with it, but they keep going back to it. That's what's going on with them as well. They're still kind of, they want to be their own boss still here, not living under God's sovereignty. And so they ask for a king. That's what they end up asking for in the story. Now, God's plan, and he had told them before they entered the land, back in Deuteronomy. Back in Deuteronomy 17, God had communicated through Moses, you guys are going to enter the land, and you know what you're going to want? A king. Let me tell you about this. So in Deuteronomy 17, 14, it says, When you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you, and have taken possession of it, and settled in it, and, and you say, let us set a king over us like all the nations around us. And as we'll read in a moment, they said almost exactly that. Be sure to appoint over you a king the Lord your God chooses. He must be from among your fellow Israelites. So it's not like God didn't see this coming. It's not like God didn't prepare them. And we might wonder, well, then what's the problem? They're asking for a king. They want a king to lead the people. But they're also supposed to be a nation of priests. We read in Exodus, who show the world who God is, who work on behalf of God to reveal God to the rest of the world. And yet, as we can see, they are not good soil that's going to produce 160, 30. They're not even going to produce half. They're bad soil right now. They're rocky. They're thorny. They're not living in obedience to God. And we can see in the story that they're frustrated with Samuel they were frustrated with Eli and his kids. They're frustrated with Samuel and his kids. His kids aren't living up to it. They're wicked just like Eli's kids were, even though Samuel's good. So what's a king going to do then? What is a king going to do that's better if they're not obedient already? 
They're, they're not asking for the right thing. They're not prepared for it. And they're not going to reveal to the world who God is. It's not the time for a king in earthly terms, basically. And you can see that. We'll go then to chapter 8 of 1 Samuel. Because the people, and we heard this this morning, they come to Samuel, starting at verse 4. It says, So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, You are old. How would you like an employee in your company to go to the boss and start a sentence like that? Hey, you're old. You are old, and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel, so he prayed to the Lord. Verse 7. And the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. As they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know that the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. And we heard that this morning, all the things the king is going to take for himself. It's not necessarily going to bring glory to God. It's self that the king is taking it. The people are essentially going to Samuel and asking for a God replacement. They're asking for an idol. They're asking for something they can control to, to go before them in battle and do their bidding, just like they did with the ark, just like they were trying with the Baals and the Ashtoreths. They haven't changed. So when they ask for a king, it's not the right time because the soil conditions stink. That's why. And what's really ironic about it is they're suffering and they're having trouble in the land because of their own disobedience. If they just turned, as Samuel called them, things would probably go right and eventually they could have a king and things would work out just fine. But they're the ones who are disobeying. And in their disobedience, what do they do? They cut off the one who cares about them the most who can actually fix the problem. They turn from God in their disobedience. We live in a time when, and this is not historically new, I just want to point out, but we live in a time when I think it's more easy to find because of our uh, exposure to all manner of media out there. Um, when it comes to bullying and people being shamed, we hear a lot about body shaming, those kinds of things out in, in the media. Those are bad things. But we live in a time when uh, we actually get really excited when somebody who's shamed ends up shaming the shamers. Did you follow that? When somebody who's shamed, the victim, gets, ends up shaming the shamers. And usually in the, in the most, you know, get them just right where it hurts kind of way. Right? And so this stuff pops up on social media feeds and all over. This person got back at this person in this way. And what happened in the first place was bad, but is it any better when the shaming happens the other way around? We live in a culture where we're perfectly happy to flip off those we disagree with. Because the ends justify the means too often. Where we want, feel okay telling people off as long as we feel just in doing it, right? My position's right, theirs is obviously wrong, so I can treat them, however, to show them how wrong they are. It's unfortunate, but we celebrate it more and more. Can I just tell you, when we look at what God does here, how God responds, when the people basically tell him off, he shows grace. He shows care 
for his people. Doesn't that teach us something pretty remarkable? That he handpicks their ruler is what he does. And he handpicks their ruler so they have the possibility of improving their soil quality and returning to him. What a God of grace and blessing we serve. He's going to let them face the consequences of their decision, just like a parent would for a child. But he's going to make a way for them to come back in his care and grace. And what we need to take away from this is that we might live in a time of thorny soil conditions and rocky soil conditions, even hard-packed soil conditions around us. But our task is to worship God fully, to seek God earnestly, so we can worship God fully. So we know who God is, so we don't fall into the trap of not receiving the blessing that God has given us, and then sharing that blessing with those around us. We need to seek God earnestly so we can worship God fully. God does something when finally King Saul is chosen. First of all, he's chosen as and anointed as Prince Saul, a detail that we might investigate later. We won't investigate deeply now, but God takes him step by step. We might recognize that even if the soil in your life is hard-packed, it might take a little bit to till the soil. So it might have taken with Saul. He's kind of created as a journeyman in the process, not an expert or a master. But God handpicks somebody that's going to look right to the culture, a strapping young man. He's going to look good. He's going to look like the guy, like they want, who can take them into battle, wherever they go, and win. But what's also interesting is when God picks Saul, he picks somebody who is humble from his start. He seems very loyal to his family, to his father. In in fact, when, when he is encountered along the way, Uh, He's out trying to find some lost donkeys from his father's estate, basically. And they end up going to Samuel to help find those donkeys. He's humble. He doesn't actually want the job. That's actually a a positive in, in a case like choosing a king or a ruler. He comes from the smallest clan of the smallest tribe. He himself even says that. What what business do I have ruling if I come from those uh, roots? And then to top it off, uh, when he's finally anointed by Samuel, it's Samuel traveling with Saul and one of his servants. And Samuel says, hey, dismiss your servant. And he anoints him in private. And I think what God is doing here is, yeah, he's picking something that's going to look the part for them, for Israel, and say, okay, this is what you want, just so you know. But I'm going to pick some things here that will also show my power at work in this situation, that you can return to me. And I'm going to put that in King Saul. He, he, Saul's job is going to be to unify the 12 tribes of Israel. And look at how he's got to start. He started in a private anointing ceremony, searching for donkeys for his father's estate from the smallest tribe and the smallest clan within that tribe in Israel. This is kind of a humble beginning for somebody who's supposed to do this great big task of unifying and taking Israel into battle. And I think God is showing that he's going to use what stands in contrast to his plan to soften the hearts of his people. He's going to use this thing that the people wanted. And he's going to put in him characteristics and traits that need God to succeed. Saul's going to have to choose God if he really wants to succeed. And he's got that choice. God does a work in Saul. We can see in 1 Samuel 10, 9. You know, there's, there's some signs that Samuel has given to Saul. He says three things are going to happen. And uh, it says in 10, 9, it says, As Saul turned to leave Samuel, God changed his heart. And all these signs were fulfilled that day. 
Some of you might have God transformed his heart. Saul didn't want to be king. Saul didn't ask for it. God chooses Saul. Saul looks the part, but God puts uh, within Saul some things that are going to be out of his reach without God's power. And he gives him from the beginning this power, authority, and this purpose. And even Saul, right after this, you can see he's got some, God is working through him because he prophesies. God speaks through him right after this. So God is setting things up so that Saul can succeed if he'll only obey. Within a culture then of hard-packed soil, rocky soil, thorny soil, God makes something grow in Saul. That's remarkable. And the question becomes, will Saul continue in that path so that the soil conditions of Israel change? Or will Saul be pulled in to the bad soil conditions and give in to the ways of the past? If you look at the order of worship that you have in your bulletin, you don't need to look now, but you've, you've looked at it probably, and we've experienced most of it up to this point on this Sunday. Uh, it's changed over the years, and uh, I know since I've been here, we've tried to be very thoughtful whenever we do make changes to it. But there are a couple different schools of thought that go into how we shape a worship service. Um, and, and I ascribe to partially to one school of thought that says that everything that, that is constructed in a Sunday morning worship service uh, needs to be theme-oriented, right? It has to relate to a theme. Today, transformation. Let's just pick that since we just talked about it. That every song, every prayer, every scripture must relate to transformation. I only ascribe to half of that. Like, part of it should. I think music that's close to the sermon, for instance, should relate to the theme. That's good. But, but I don't hold to it so strongly that everything relates to a theme because I've been in worship services where everything relates to a theme, but nobody liked the music whatsoever, right? And you could walk away saying that the, the, the theme was great, it was right there, but there was a real drag of a worship service to go through, right? And I think the way that we've constructed this is that the opening, the beginning of our worship is praise and adoration of our God, focused completely on God. And if it has to do with the theme, that's a bonus. If not, no big deal. We praise. The style isn't, isn't the issue. We praise God. The theme is secondary to that. The reason why is because I hope and pray each week that we get to the moment where we hear the word, not my word, the word of God, and we have soft hearts. Because we were drawn in to the scripture. We were drawn in through music. We were drawn in through prayer, through testimony. Whatever it is that we hear, that we have soft hearts so that we're able to receive what God is giving us. The blessing that we're given each week. And I think we can take heart in what happens with Saul. Because here you have a guy who didn't want the job. And, and it, it could have gone different ways. But God transforms him. And take encouragement. No matter your start, God can transform your heart. No matter where you're starting this morning, if, if you're feeling hard of heart, if you're feeling soft of heart, God can transform you no matter where you are. But the task is to let him get in there and do it. The task is to let the word sink in and grow inside of us. And for some of us, we, re we don't realize, and I'll have these days where I don't realize how hard my heart is in certain areas, how hard-packed it is, how much I don't want to let God get in that particular area. It's like the path. And what's, what's dangerous about the path is as you read what's going on in the path, we heard the explanation of the parable this morning, it's not simply that, that the seed is sown of the good news. 
and the soil is so hard that the, the seed can't get in, there might be a crack there. The seed might be able to get in the crack there, and there might be some hope. But what actually, there's opposition to the seed getting in there because birds come and snatch it away. It's not that the seed is just sitting there, and maybe eventually it'll get soft enough or rain comes. No, something, there's active opposition against the good news getting inside of us. There's active opposition, and sometimes we're a part of that without realizing it. We want God's word to get rooted deep inside of us, and we need to get rid of that opposition. For some of us, it means allowing other people to actually speak into our lives, where we're hard to that. For some of us, it means changing things in our lives, schedules, and the input that we take in, because we're never allowing God to put any input in there. We always have other sources that we're looking at, and we're avoiding actively the possibility of God getting in there. We need to change our habits and our routines in some way so that God can speak and things can grow within us. When it comes to that rocky soil or even the the thorny soil, they're similar in how they present themselves. For the rocky soil, it's kind of like going to a a camp or somewhere where you, you hear the word and you take it in at the altar call, but then we don't follow it up with anything. We don't follow up with discipleship to dedicate ourselves to the disciplines of Scripture and to prayer and meeting together with God's people and meeting in groups or Sundays or whatever it might be. I've met too many people who say, I want what God gives me, but then they don't follow it up. They're enthusiastic and excited about what God could do in their lives, but they say, but I want to change my schedule and actually read the Bible or do those things that I need to do or go to church, or whatever it might be, but we need to dig in for ourselves and continue to dig in where we find things are a little rocky in parts of our lives. For the thorns, worry and wealth come in there and they present themselves in different ways. Let's just point out what they are. It's idolatry is what's going on here, and idolatry is subtle. It gets us in ways we don't realize. Wealth, busyness, happiness, self-satisfaction, all those can seep in there. For some of us, it's worries about work or family relationships that seep in, and they overtake us so that the things of God become secondary, and the things of uh, of today are the only thing that we can see. For some of us, it's, it's like the rocky soil expanded where we don't want to deal with some of these issues, and so we seek self satisfaction and happiness. We create bucket lists. There's nothing wrong with doing experiences and travel, but we create bucket lists because we don't think that what's coming is better than what we have. We think this is the best there will be, and we don't trust that God has something better in store for us. And when we read Scripture, we're living in a thorny world. When we read Scripture, when we go before God, we need to ask, God, where are your promises? Where am I missing those promises? Where am I missing the blessings that you've given me? God, where's the good news that I'm not seeing that I need to take hold of? Those are the things we need to ask as we approach God's word. If we don't, we end up looking for things like happiness at the expense of joy, right? We end up looking for for the good stuff that God has, but never really making it to the best that God has for us. Or to put it in terms of the line, the witch in the wardrobe, it ends up being always, Christmas, or always winter and never Christmas in our lives. We never get to the packages. Now what we want is good soil, well tilled in our lives, to allow God to get in there and actually till and then plant the good news within us so that there is a harvest 
160 or 30, which, by the way, is an astounding harvest, no matter who you ask. That's a great yield. We live in a culture of hard paths, of rocky soil, of thorns. There's no question, and it's not new. We live in that world. We must be deeply rooted in God's ways so that we lead others towards him, but that begins with our own wayward hearts and making sure we understand how hard, how rocky, how thorny those are. And we need to recognize God is in the business of blessing. He's raining it down on us day in and day out. Are we able and are we ready? Are you ready to receive what he offers? Let's pray together. God, you are good and your mercy endures forever. God, you are graceful with us, recognizing that though we can be like the Israelites we read about, rejecting you, and then blaming you for the things that go wrong in our lives that we caused or that others caused, that you're still graceful and bless us. God, help us be people who see your promises where they are and for what they are and live because of your promises to us. Help us be people who recognize how good your good news is. Help us be people who walk into our our homes and into worship and into work and into school with hearts that are soft and ready to share that good news with others, ready to have you speak through our brothers and sisters who we worship with regularly, not closed off, not hardened to the new truths that we sometimes just have never faced but that are your blessings for us. God, help us never be afraid to grow in your love and care, your grace, your holiness. God, help us ever be thinking about the hope that you've given us, that we can draw others into that hope, not simply living for today, not simply being consumed by the worries of now, not simply being pacified in this life, thinking happiness is the best that we can get, but being joyful, letting your word be planted in us so that that joy would come out of us, so that your spirit would work through us. Father, do not let us have hard hearts as we leave this place, but hearts softened and ready for your good news. We pray this in your name. Amen.